For December 24th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 234, Schrodinger's Instagram. Welcome to the Overthinking a Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, in my podcasting garret, I am your host, Matthew Rather. And from New Jersey, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what town. Paramus. I'm at Paramus, New Jersey. Uh-huh. Oh, Paramus. I've, I've been to their fine Ikea. Oh, why, yes, yes. I, there's a, I can tell the story of the construction of the highway overpass that precedes that Ikea, but I don't want to excite you too much prior to the podcast, as you may explode. <laughs> uh, well, it, yeah, and it, the, at the holidays, you know, the holidays are a time of stories, a time when we gather to tell each other, uh, once again, uh, a story that's important to us all, the story of the construction of the highway overpass that led to the construction of the Ikea in Paramus, New Jersey. No, it's Pete Fenzel. Was, <laughs> hey, hey. I was going to say, the holidays are a time you spend a lot of you spend a lot of that time on highway overpasses in Paramus, New Jersey, trying to get the <laughs> trying to get to Paramus Park. But of course, because of the Bergen County Blue Laws, stores are closed today, so it's hard to, to holiday shop. Hey, I'm doing good. Uh, happy holidays, man. Uh, Merry upcoming Christmas. Oh, thanks, thanks very much, and uh, Merry upcoming Christmas to you too, and to uh, to all of our listeners. We hope that you know as you tick off. Uh, your list of holidays for this uh, for this holiday season. Uh, we hope that you know the ones you've ticked off have been great, and the ones that you have to tick off are uh, you know minimally stressful and stuff. Mm-hmm. I just want to highlight uh, a couple uh, things about the circumstances of this podcast being done. Um, uh, Pete is right now in a hotel lobby where he has gone <laughs> to find some Wi-Fi so that he can Skype with me on his phone so that we can record an episode and not uh, not break our streak. And it's it's later in the day for him than me because I'm on the West Coast and he's on the East Coast. And uh, so much more of a sacrifice for Pete than it is for me. And I want to – I just want to highlight that. You know, uh, I mean, I, I, I hate to use the word hero because what's a hero? But some Sometimes, sometimes there's a man in a lobby on free Wi-Fi uh, on an Android phone, and that man is Pete Fenzel. And uh, you know, just just so you know what it takes to bring this, to bring this to you, uh, it, is a, it is a far far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far far better Courtyard Marriott lobby that I am in now than I have ever been in previously. Uh, so this uh, this podcast is brought to you by the Courtyard Marriott, and uh, and by for the last time. Uh, I'm going to plug our uh, Amazon affiliate link, which you can find in the sidebar on the homepage of Overthinking It, and uh, in all of the uh, in all of the products in the posts in our 2002 holiday gift guide. Uh, I'm plugging it because after Christmas, you might have gotten some gift cards or some things that you're going to return. And if any of those have to do with Amazon, when you go to Amazon, click through. Uh, you've been great. We've um, you know, we've highlighted some of our picks before. We've highlighted some of the uh, we've highlighted uh, some of the things that people have bought. No need to highlight anything except let me highlight this. Two podcasts ago, I went off on a like a ten minute tangent about the Amazon affiliate link that that Pete and Mark listened to to me and uh, they, they sat through and listened to me ramble on about. I cut it out before. Um, 
before uh, posting the podcast online so that uh, that podcast is is you know only an hour five instead of the hour 15 it would have been with my 10 minute rant about the Amazon affiliate link so I want to highlight that uh, I want to highlight my own forbearance <laughs> I am <laughs> you're gonna like go through and all the highlights that you're gonna then you're gonna have to cut out 10 minutes of highlights of your previous rants so that we get back down to our regular running time so uh, hey we appreciate that you've used our uh, affiliate link uh, throughout the holidays and help to support overthinking it that way. It really is a big deal for us to get that chunk of change that helps us with the hosting and the costs of uh, costs of running the site. Um, turns out display advertising, uh, not a great business model uh, on, the, <laughs> on the web. Has anyone, bought, has anyone bought the Wii U yet? Has anyone bought the Wii U? We haven't it's seen, we haven't seen anyone... <laughs> I haven't seen anyone buy the uh, haven't seen anyone buy the Wii U yet. Though uh, I do like to say around this time of year, we know you have a choice of Amazon affiliate links because every damn podcast is doing uh, something like this, and so we're grateful that you use the one on overthinking it and not the one on like Adam Carolla. You know, like he needs the freaking money, right? He would recommend something far less whimsical than a Wii U for you to purchase. <laughs> yeah, probably like a, a you know a Makita drill or so you know cordless <laughs> yes. cordless power tool of some kind. Though Who wants you know nonsense. Yeah. All right, we're doing it again, Matt. We're doing it again. <laughs> uh, off we go onto the holiday podcast. So hey, you know who's been in the news a lot recently? Instagram. So uh, <laughs> yes. You know, I like it's a who. I like Instagram as a who. <laughs> right. But Barry J. Instagram. If, yeah, uh, exactly. yeah, if Mr. Instagram were a person, uh, you know, I think of him as someone dressed up in skinny jeans and like thick rimmed, you know, old style glasses. Uh, living in Echo Park, right uh, in Los Angeles or Williamsburg or something. Williamsburg is Williamsburg is actually sort of name checked as the home of hipsters so much that it's probably not cool anymore. I I would like to know actually if anyone wants to write in uh, in the comments or write into podcast at overthinking it dot com. I would like to know where the new new home of the hipsters is mm. right see i don't i don't picture instagram itself as a hipster i picture instagram as like that uncle of yours that when you were a little kid always had these really cool things to show you but when you grew up you realized that the really cool things were like he got like wood paneling in his house or like you know he, he got like a picture of himself kind of like 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 photo edited in next to like muhammad ali right or he got like uh you know he got like a really a really boss like uh, rear projection television from you know out of the garbage <laughs> it's just like somebody who kind of takes what he has and and that is kind of shambly and takes a great deal of zeal in altering it in a way that it makes it sort of less practical and more conspicuous <laughs> so <laughs> like he got a moose head that's got like a that's dressed up like a mobster right and it's got like a machine gun and it's got a big cigar in its mouth and a big like and a big fedora yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's the Instagram experience for me is like I could get a regular moose head, but instead I'm going to ruin it. No, I actually just joined Instagram, so I actually really like it. But I'll let you ask the question of the week. That uh, that strikes me as odd, Pete, but I'm, I'm going to take that up with you later. The question of the week, uh, though, in honor of Instagram and in honor of, of – uh, our idea for uh, the kind of topics that we'd like to talk about today is if you could uh, create an Instagram filter that would magically do anything to your photos, whether or not it's possible in actual life, um, the, uh, you know, the alteration could be uh, anything you like. What would you have Instagram uh, do to your photos? Let me just check the alphabetical list of podcasters here. 
<laughs> Go on. Check it. Check it. Uh, huh? <laughs> uh, huh? <laughs> I think it's you, Pete. So uh, I'm okay, going to drink. Thank you. Except I'm, I'm, my- I'm drinking my coffee instead of my – and there's no, uh, there's no Irish in my coffee because, uh, you know, it's early in the morning for me being uh, – right. Half past one in the afternoon, unlike the usual evening time when we record this podcast. Yeah. Well, it's still early enough that the hotel bar is not open, so I'm here uh, next to like a volume down flat screen of the of the what was the Jets game. <laughs> I want to say as, as if they've been demoted and are no longer a professional team. Okay, <laughs> to answer the question, I would love to see, because you know there's lots of Instagram pictures of people's foods, there's lots of Instagram pictures of people, the things that people feel great about. I would love to see a filter that by analyzing a combination of colors and shapes could put in text on the pictures in various regions of the pictures like automatopoeic expressions of how you're supposed to feel about what those things are such as ah ooh eek eh question mark uh, and so you could look at a meal and you could determine like how you're supposed to feel about each part of a meal because as it is it's difficult for me to comprise a complex emotional reaction right or compose a, a complex emotional reaction to like a giant plate of food. And I'd be like, well, it looks at the vegetables and it's like, hmm, you know, it looks at the big taco and it's like, aha, you know, and I'd love to see it try to do that also for people uh, and for places and um, perhaps for, uh, yeah, I mean, pets in, t- in particular. And just to sort of see if there's a, if, if there's a way to get it to work that, um, I mean, obviously this is a crazy idea that would never work, but um, if there would be a way to get it to work, if there are connections between certain sort of shape and color tropes that you could get it close enough that the results would be funny rather than useless or both <laughs> like useless and funny without being like offensively terrible. So I don't know. So it's, it's a kind of Adam Westification uh, yes. filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would definitely be like, it would definitely be called, is there already one called West? There might already be a filter called <laughs> So maybe it's called Burt Ward. I think it's just called Zwap. Or Zwap. <laughs> Biff. Thwap. Thwap, I guess you could call it that. Um, well, that would be a little bit different if you put, like, if you just put words of punctuated interjections. You'd have to have a whole variety. I feel like this is a whole app. This isn't, like, it's like an Instagram. Does Instagram do plugins? Does it do, like, sort of, do they have, a, do they have other people develop apps that people can use to filter the photos that go into their system? Or is it end-to-end they do all the business themselves? I think they do all the business. I don't know. I'm not on Instagram like you, but we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in a second. Um, yeah. So here's mine. I, you know, I remember uh, when... My elementary school photographer suddenly got awesome backgrounds that you could switch out so that it wasn't just like the blue drop cloth, uh, but was instead like lasers. Yeah, we all know the lasers. Yeah, the pink and blue lasers that go behind you. And nobody's parents let them get if if they were serious. But yeah, no, got- I was I was never allowed to get those. But I really liked them. I really wanted them. Mm-hmm. Though though the um, see it, be, it being the holidays, I go to my mother's house where there is a year by year sort of uh, march through the ages of the eight by ten school photos. You know that that came home one every year. So uh, and whenever I have friends of mine over, or it was always a uh, it was always a, a rich, sort of a ritual a rite of passage in a relationship um before i met my current girlfriend uh <laughs> which she loves being called my current girlfriend let me tell you <laughs> yes just like i like being called my current employee by my <laughs> before before um uh, before I met my present girlfriend my oh, long, even- <laughs> yeah my long time girlfriend uh 
the uh, uh, let's just call her my girlfriend, um, you know, and had other shorter relationships. Uh, it was always a rite of passage for them to see the, you know, the lineup of photos, um, you know, hmm. should they come for a holiday meal or something like that uh, or any any visit home. Right. Uh, hmm. Yeah. None of those none of those have the laser. So I would like to retroactively insert um, the awesome laser background in hmm. my uh, in my photographs. Um, because like a, a picture of a plate of food or a picture of like a plane wing with a couple of uh, clouds, right? Or, uh, you know, a selfie, they're called selfies when you, uh, you know, hold the photo, uh, hold the camera out, uh, slightly up to, uh, minimize the waddle, right? And turn <laughs> your, you know, turn your chin toward it and, and snap a photo of yourself. All of those things would be improved, uh, by the addition of a laser, background mm-hmm. and it would be good if it auto detected the edges so that it could just drop in the background behind you and figure out what was you know important in the photograph uh and and it would also be good if you could selectively eliminate your friends um from <laughs> i feel like that would be a great feature in and of itself <laughs> like if you if you call it stalin is what you would call it you just great people like <laughs> you just click on a person gone yeah yeah <laughs> I actually ran across a friend who went to a photo booth that did the thing where they put the old school child like childhood lasers behind them. Uh, and so it is out there. It is an option that you can have done for you. Although I don't think it's integrated into Instagram just yet. And you can't be Stalin, as far as I know. You can be like cropped out, but they can't just sort of replace you with a pot of flowers or something like that. <laughs> so the so the laser Stalin feature is, uh, is laser my Stalin. feature. Oh. So I'm I'm surprised, Pete, that you joined Instagram given that. Um, uh, you you have rejected Facebook as a social media platform, and and if anyone wants to know about that, they can read your post. Why I quit Facebook on overthinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, since they were uh, since they were purchased, and also since you have a you have a, a contentious history with uh, overly restrictive terms of service. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I should say terms is of service, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. terms of services. Uh, mm-hmm. y- you know, you have to do the attorneys general, courts martial style <laughs> plural. But the the word is already um, the word is already plural. So you know, overly restrictive terms is of service. Uh, terms of services. <laughs> um, right. So the. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm surprised that you would join Instagram at this point in the general cultural uh, <laughs> well, Michigas. <laughs> well, you can blame me for all the freaking problems that just happened because I joined like two weeks prior to it, and I'm like, all right, here we go again, right? You know, I think, oh, this might be a nice thing to try out. It's been a couple of years now since I quit Facebook, and I definitely like using Twitter, and of course they have a lot of changes, and I use Google Plus sometimes, and they've had a lot of changes, and so it's a little bit hypocritical of me to say like I'm you know the spearhead of the revolution here. Um, so I was like, I figured I, I went. What I, happened is I went shooting. I went, uh, I, which is another thing that I, now is terribly gauche and terrible thing to do in like the past couple of weeks. All these the meanings of these things have totally transformed. Um, but I went uh, like shooting at, at aluminum cans at, out in central Massachusetts with some improv friends of mine. And we took a bunch of pictures and, you know, their pictures got to put on Instagram and my pictures I sort of put up on, uh, I think it's like pin me or whatever, or something like whatever, some, some weird, not Pinterest, but some like 
thing that's related to my Twitter client. It's kind of a bootleg image uh, hosting platform. So I figured I'd join Instagram and I'd give it a shot. And I started taking more pictures of things. And then, of course, you know, two weeks, three weeks later, they changed the terms of service. And I'm like, great. Now I have to quit again, I guess. You know, but I haven't done it yet, but um, I'll see how this shakes well, out. They, but. They, they backpedaled and they, they yeah. uh, you know, they, they took it back. But this is, I mean, this is the whole, I don't know, this is the whole thing. Like, you can't, I, I feel like you can't demand all that much uh, from a free service, right? That, that is to say, you, you can't really demand that they not invade your privacy because that's how, that's how they're making their money. I mean, if you don't... Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess. I, I, mean, I, would, I would stop you when you're saying it's free service because obviously it's not a free service. It's, I mean, in terms of them taking value from you, they, they wouldn't be providing the service if it was free, right? And there's definitely an opportunity cost associated. I mean, the biggest cost, the biggest cost associated with using a service like Facebook or Instagram is the opportunity cost of not using another platform, right? Which, is, which translated into value is huge for them. Right, like they need to win that. They need to put resources and time into winning that business from you. So you know the fact that, and also the opportunity cost of there even being another platform, right? So the the one of the big costs of say you know, well a better something that makes it look a little bit more clear is is LinkedIn, right? So LinkedIn is free. Right, and you go on LinkedIn and you post your professional information on LinkedIn. Well, what are some of the costs of using LinkedIn for professional networking? Well, it's you don't. It means you're not doing the professional networking on your Facebook account, right? And it mean to Facebook that means that they don't have as much uh, momentum in professional networking, right? It means that you're not uh, calling people as much on the phone about things. It means that you're not spending that time out on the newspapers. It maybe it, it has an effect on your business that, with Monster.com, right? So, in the sense of it being free, I mean, yes, you're not paying money for cash. it. Cash, yeah, yeah, you're not paying. You're not paying cash for it. But you are paying, yeah. You are giving up or, or sort of transferring to them certain certain amounts of value, and that has that has to do with things about like your location or the people yeah. you know or the things that you're interested in or you know what you tend to click on. All of which is is extraordinarily valuable to marketers. And there was, a, of course, I'm not going to look it up right now, uh, but you know there was a um, uh, uh, what a quote float or a tweet or something like floating around the internet, which is that like if you uh, uh, which reminds me of the Harry Potter, uh, the Harry Potter quote, like, uh, don't trust anything if you can't see where it keeps its brain, right? right and it's right, like, right. if you can't, it, you know, if you're not paying money for uh, the service, you are, in fact, the product being sold. And that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true of Google, right? That's true of, uh, of Facebook. That's, you know, that's true of all of these. And, and it's true of it's true of Instagram. But this, I think that this, uh, sometimes, I don't know, I think that this can can sort of mask another huge social change, right? That like, even absent these services, or even with, um, even with uh, terms, terms of services that, uh, you know, protected our privacy a little bit more, the, the, um, the fact that we're taking all these photographs and and mm-hmm. you know and then like you know I don't know uh, desaturating them and like putting old timey Polaroid borders uh, on them mm-hmm. before we post them online like the fact that we're the fact that we are we are generating documentation uh, of our lives in a uh, you know in a far more aggressive way than than we might have previously. Uh, because the costs associated with creating pictures is uh, those costs aren't as high anymore or you know uh, because they're just more available uh, readier to hand uh, because there's a, you know a huge infrastructure uh, in place around around these things now like we are um you know we're generating we're generating this this uh kind of um auto documentation uh of our lives in a way and that the, there there are certain like implications to this right in terms of um 
I don't know, in terms of how we think of ourselves and how we interact with, with our memories and, and one another. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I'll close out that last one by saying that you know, the fact that your information is going out there and being used for commercial purposes was never my problem with any of these platforms. Well, the problem I had, and you can read it in the essay, was just how they go about deciding and telling you and making agreements with you about how this is going to happen, right? So I'll just, but I want to put that to rest and, and address your, your second thing, which is, I mean, I think that the big reason that I joined it, it's been a, a very different kind of social and experience to be sharing these pictures with people that I previously wasn't wasn't sharing pictures with. And and I, the one thing that I miss the most about being on Facebook in particular is like pictures of, of my family, pictures of my friends, which I don't have as many of. And of course, this was one of the big reasons why I had, I sort of had to, practical reasons independently of the um, the sort of moral reasons to leave was that my employer was going to be able to see people tagging pictures of me dancing in places where there was kind of an expectation, not of privacy or anonymity, but at least of kind of discretion, right? Um, or at least a certain context. Um, but that but at has any to rate, do, I mean, that has to do with kind of like a social contract among your friends, right? That like, yeah. and, and, and it seems to me that the rule, the, the general rule has become like all bets are off, right? In yeah. terms of, um, you know, in terms of of this stuff, uh, to the point where I've I've seen uh, people like uh, taking taking pictures or videos or things like this in in like professional theater rehearsals that I've been involved in, and uh, right. you know I hate this right mm-hmm. because like if if you're an actor you're in the business of kind of selling your image right and they, I, mm-hmm. I, of course no one really wants to buy my image at least not at the moment but like you're in the business of trying to sell your image and the the idea that like. You know, the idea that it can be sort of appropriated by anyone at any time, especially when you're kind of in a professional context. Uh, and the, the fact that there, there would be actors stupid enough not to have a sensitivity to that, or at least, uh, you know, lacking in the, the selfishness typically and, you know, narcissism typically associated with actors, right? Not to sort of realize the huge value of, you know, pictures of them I, shocks me. Uh, mm-hmm. Or or whatever, all bets all yes. bets are off. But um, I mean, I've experienced it, that very similar. There was a scandal uh, at my theater. I won't go into detail because I don't want to like dredge up problems. But there was a scandal where there was some stand-up comedians were potentially going to be videotaped during a kind of not an open mic, but sort of a step above an open mic kind of show, where they may or may not have been doing their best material. And stand-up comedians are very protective of videotapes of them going out, right? Because if there's a tape of you doing comedy and no one is laughing. Right or they even even if you did a great sh- set in front of a great crowd, uh, the stand-up uh, clubs will mic the crowd a lot of the time so that the laughter of the crowd gets into the tape, so the people who see your tape know that people were laughing. All right, and so that there's a lot of of work that's done. But I mean, then, you know, again, that's that's sort of not that's, that's all a little bit sideways from the thing you're talking about initially, which is sort of how has this changed our lives? But it's also, I mean, I mean like stand stand-up comedians, there's a there's a huge value in that stuff being novel. Right. Like in, in yeah. not having heard the not having heard the jokes before. And when right. you're, you know, and it's uh, right. Like l- the big comedians, the people who do HBO specials only do HBO specials once they've like taken that hour all the way around the country. Right. Like and it's mm. the last couple stops of the tour that get uh, that get taped for the special. You could you wouldn't tape the special, uh, you know, with a new hour of material, air it and then go around the country 
go around the country, um, you know, doing the same material and expect people to like pay money and, and laugh and, and well, come but, out that's, for that. but that's that's what rock bands do though. They record the album and then, or in any kind of band, record the album, sell the album, and then do the tour. There is actually, and I was just thinking of this actually as the words that were coming coming out of my head. There's a great passage in Born Standing Up, which is Steve Martin's sort of autobiography, mm-hmm. where he talks about going out and doing his jokes and getting not exactly laughs, but sort of cheers, right? Mm. And, uh, when he did the, you know, I don't know, well, excuse me, or the arrow through the head bit, or so, you know what I mean? Some of his, some of his really popular bits. And he was actually doing them in front of stadium-sized crowds, uh, you know, in the, the, like, the mid-five figures, I think. And the, mm. uh, if not higher, I forget exactly. But the, the, but that's not, you see, that's not laughter, that's recognition, mm. right? That's like, that's, um, that's applause, and the applause is 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 f- for the crowd itself, right? As much as it is for the musicians, that is to say, it's it's a way of kind of socially signaling that, like, I recognize the thing that's going on, and I'm part of the in group that is, uh, you know, that admires this thing, um, yeah. ra- rather than being the kind of spontaneous reaction of 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 laughter and delight, you know, that you kind of want to engender in an audience as a as a stand up comedian. Um, but okay, so right, like this this thing. Uh, this this phenomenon of sort of being right of being videotaped and sort of of uh, or being photographed and and uh, controlling uh, images of yourself and controlling recordings of yourself. But uh, the interesting thing to me is that a lot of this stuff is self generated. They're even like even more recently than than Instagram. The 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 like the hotness and the controversy as well on the internet seems to be like these services like Snapchat, right? Which is this like instant messaging service that uses pictures where you like sext your nudes, you know, to your... To I like your, to think that's spelled N-0-0-D-S, right? D-Z, D-Z right? D-Z, right. Yeah, yeah. You, you sext your nudes. I stand corrected, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, to your uh, significant other, and they self-destruct, right, in, in five seconds. Right, there's, right, right. The, there's, the scandal is people taking, uh, uh, the scandal is, right, people taking screenshots of this, because nothing prevents you from using your phone's operating system to take a screenshot and uh and then this is so popular that in fact our friend facebook released a uh uh, competitive app called um poke i think where they're leveraging the the facebook like poke trademark i don't know if it's a trademark but to uh I'm going to wager it's probably a trademark. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, maybe they can't trademark it, but it's like that legal team probably have named it something different. I would wager if they couldn't trademark it, right? Uh, the um, the idea is that you you are doing this IMing with with pictures, and mm-hmm. so it's uh, you know, and whether they're dirty pictures or not. Um, and I yeah, I mean, I think the moral panic over dirty pictures is is greatly exaggerated but whatever kind of pictures they are they're pictures you're generating of you they're part of this sort of they're, they're part of this sort of documentation i have never uh you guys should do this i've never gone back through my facebook photos that i've uploaded to facebook i, I upload extremely few photos to facebook but people have tagged me in photos that they've uploaded i untag myself a lot of the time um yeah. but like uh i've never gone through those right like do you 
do you think do you go through your old your old pictures and it's like oh remember that party we had last saturday here's pictures here i am you know singing no i mean i can't i i I got rid of it i can't i don't have those pictures you have them on your phone or in instagram or in you know or in things you tweet or something like that is to say we're we're accumulating this huge record we're accumulating this this giant album of of you know pictures of ourselves like i never look at that that poop right do you ever look at that at, at that poop no, I don't. I mean, I, I, I actually don't have it. Like, like if I were to do it, I would have to get a Facebook account, go on Facebook, find old pictures of, I mean, the phones, the, the pictures I had on my phones died on my phones when my phones died, right? Like I haven't been putting them on SD cards or anything. I don't, I have a photo bucket account, I guess. So I can go back and look at that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, it's like it's. I feel sort of on the spot about it. It's no, like, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. I think the answer is no, and the the answer for me is is no. Like, and the um, and thank thank goodness, right? Because you could you could like forever be uh, you know, the sort of person that's always like whipping out the family album, right? When guests come over, you you could just live your life in a perpetual state of that. Uh, mm-hmm. If you know, if you didn't sort of. Uh, if you were the sort of person who was kind of always going through this this self documentation but i i um i 've been thinking about this recently, and my thinking was sort of influenced by this New Yorker article I read about uh, genera- about taking a lot of pictures and especially today it was written by a parent it was taking a lot of pictures um, taking a lot of pictures of kids it's it 's by a guy named uh, uh, Thomas Beller. And the uh, the article is called "Saying Goodbye to Now," and there's this sort of implication in it. He's talking about taking pictures of his daughter. Like, there's this implication in it that we sort of aren't, uh, you know, fully present uh, in the moment. Um, where uh, you know we aren't fully present in the moment when we're sort of constantly thinking about documenting the moment and that. But then he talks about a couple of moments with his daughter when there wasn't a camera to hand, like one where she's on the playground and she like jumps off the slide into his arms, right? And you can't reach for your camera and take a picture of her midair. But he has this like vivid memory of his child uh, flying through the air um, at him, and that that somehow there's a there's a certain amount of vividness uh, that's missing from the the memories that are. Uh, documented in 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 photographs and i you know i don't know i've i've been wondering about that and i've been wondering about it in the context uh of of morality because we often think of a kind of like uh moral dimension to remembering right and uh, you know the the number of things and i won't rehearse them here so as not to godwin the podcast but like um the the number of things about which uh, it is said, you know, we must never forget, right? Uh, right. G- clearly. Like Jiggly. <laughs> I'm sorry, Geely. 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 Speaking of, speaking of your home state of New Jersey. <laughs> um, Wait, what does Geely have to do with New Jersey? I thought it, it takes place in New Jersey. Oh, or, does it? That would make sense. Or is that, or is that Kevin Smith's Jersey Girl? Uh, which yeah, also... I think that's the Ben Affleck Jennifer Lopez movie that you're looking for. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Although this one maybe happens in New Jersey too, I'd have to look it up. I remember a lot of terrible things about that movie, but I don't remember the state it takes place in. I do remember the weird, like, kind of uh, sixpence none the richer influenced bizarre, like sort of soft pop soundtrack to the various gross discussions of like mental handicaps and like lesbian love acts. Um, I remember that being terrible. But I imagine. I don't remember it taking place. I imagine Obi Wan Kenobi uh, waving his hand in front of my eyes and saying, uh, "This is not the Ben Affleck Jennifer Lopez movie you're looking for." <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, 
So, right, so there's this, this, the, this moral dimension, we'll call it the Gili dimension, uh, to, right, to, to memory. And I wonder if we're sort of messing with that, with the, the uh, amount of, of documentation. I mean, like, if you think of, like, historically traumatic... Uh, events, right? Like, it's not like no photographic documentation exists of those things. It's, um, uh, it, there's a lot of it that exists, and we see sort of heartbreaking photographs from, from wars and from, you know, historical events that are, that we are supposed to never forget, uh, of all kinds. Um, and it seems to me that the, the, like, the moral obligation to never forget, the moral obligation to remember, um, goes beyond that somehow it goes beyond uh the documentation and I, I sort of wonder what's going on when um when we offload right when we offload memory to to something external to us and i wonder not mm. to not to not to sort of drone on and on about it but i i too late i wonder if it's um related to to the like sort of memorization of facts right there's no need to memorize facts anymore now that we have uh wikipedia and can sort of establish our own facts by editing the page uh no i mean look up the the facts and cross-reference them with reliable sources to make sure we're getting good good information now that we've sort of outsourced memory to or offloaded it to an external uh to you know to an external service uh that way i wonder i i just i sort of wonder about the the effects on us and i you know i'm not one of these technology moral panic people who's like oh it's terrible but uh, but i wonder if we've really done a rational analysis of the the pluses and minuses associated uh associated with that i don't know i've been talking long enough what do you think pete no no, so my 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 initial reaction when i'm thinking about this is uh it's actually kind of psychological right which is to think about what are the circumstances psychologically that cause us to want to reenact and remember things, right? To have things, to remember them, to conjure them as the, as uh, as if they're happening now, and to relive them over and over, right? And then the biggest thing that does this is trauma, right? Or abuse of some kind. If sure. you had a horrible traumatic event, you, you have, some people have a tendency to try to relive this thing over and over and over again uh, and try to master it, right? And this can be a horribly destructive process. Um, and so when I think both about... I mean, I'll say, like, when I think both about horrible, large-scale global catastrophes and disasters where millions of people's lives were lost, uh, or thousands, you know, or I think about Facebook, right, and I think about, like, um, like I think about what are the things that I don't do anymore because I'm not on Facebook. Well, one of the big things I don't do anymore is I don't look at happy pictures of people that I was in love with at some point in the past, right? Like, I don't, I don't hunt down and then oh, relive he, yeah, the losses. That's, that's the worst know? Let me tell yeah. you, that's the worst, right? Like, I mean, that, that's sort of, yeah. <laughs> it's a dagger in my heart, right? Every time an ex of mine, like, posts a photo of their baby. Yeah, exactly. Don't tell your current girlfriend that. <laughs> uh, but, um, because we all know that the now is the only thing that has ever happened, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, that, that there is an aspect about the availability of these memories that encourages the act of reenacting losses. Um, and, now, of course, people also reenact positive experiences in their lives. You know, the famous, um, you know, Al Bundy, like, four touchdowns a game in Polk. That, that's a good question. When Al Bundy is talking about his four touchdowns in one game in, in uh, high school, in all my, and, uh, not all my children, married with children, geez Louise, um, and he wants to sort of relive the thought of those glory days. Is it a positive reenactment that he's trying to do, or is it a negative reenactment about the trauma loss that's associated with him no longer being a high school football player, right? And so when people tell us never to forget a certain thing, I think one of the big motivating factors is never forget how horrible this thing was because the psychological scar of remembering it is going to affect your behavior and make it not happen again. 
there's sort of an implicit idea that if you don't forget it, then you can somehow prevent it. Um, and I think, I mean, that's reasonable. I think that, that it's very reasonable to say that and to God win it entirely, like that, that if people that genocide that are easily forgotten are easily repeated. And I think that it's a huge, powerful weapon against future genocides to be very vividly and emotionally uh, out there with everyone about what the awful traumatic scars were when this thing happened, because then people will remember it and they, and yeah, we'll keep reliving it, but we will try not to do it. Sure. Right? Uh, I mean, preventing genocide is, is perhaps beyond the brief of this podcast, but, uh, well, not at least, at least we only have two of us. If we had four of us, maybe we could, pretend <laughs> um, but I mean, but let's take it down to like Facebook and Instagram and the level of popular culture in terms of, you know, what are you, what is it that you, right. Just what, to fully you know, experience that pathetic drop, right. Yeah. From, uh, from genocide to Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to like make fun of a whole bunch of slam poets that I've heard over the years. <laughs> Equivalency very readily, um, but uh, um, and uh, like oh, it destroys us all. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go any farther with that joke. Um, but I, but I will say that I think that there that there is. Um, there is a way in which documenting everything and making everything available for you to go through at any time uh, can 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 trigger bad things like like can trigger negative emotional experiences can harm hurt your ability to live authentically or positively in the moment not authentically because people would say authentically would involve all your pain you know your your angst and whatnot um so it can be destructive i think i mean i I think that um i I don't i've never i very rarely i'm not gonna say never but uh, thinking back it's very rare that i think of anybody who loves going back through their old facebook photos uh, and it makes them so happy about the things that have happened to them in the past that they are utterly content and thus don't pursue anything in the future, right? It isn't an island of the lotus eaters, right? It isn't like a sort of narcotic, right? Sure. It isn't something. But it's also like happy. it's. Uh- and also, it's not really the kind of cautionary tale that you you sort of associate like never forgetting uh, historical trauma with, right? Because right. then then we would never go out and drink too much and like dance on the table, sing and living on a prayer again, right? I mean, I think sometimes it's like that, depending upon what you're looking at. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I never want to do that again. I never want to see that person again, like that sort of thing. I think it can have that level. I mean, because we are talking about, I mean, let, let's be, in terms of scope, let's be clear here. You know, it is, it is also, and this is sort of an interesting moment to address, you know, we are a pop culture website. We are a pop culture podcast. But the experiences we're talking about are individual experiences for the most part, not sort of large collective experiences where we're all watching the same thing. It's each person looking at the analog for their own life of their own pictures. Um, and so there is a sort of confusion of, not a confusion, but a conflation of scope, right? Where like, this is the biggest thing that happened to you, right? I mean, maybe I mean, it's fine. Hopefully it's not the biggest thing that happened to you. And, um, you know, hopefully you've had other things that have happened or whatever, but like you're looking at a picture on, on Facebook of something that really bothered you or a time you went out with some friends that you really miss. And like that can feel to you equivalent to like a large historical badness happening to a lot of people if you sort of scale it down. Right. Um, and so I think it's kind of appropriate as a pop culture website to sort of consider that as a common experience. It just, it gets wonky with the scale. Like we have to sort of constantly make fun of it. We have to sort of constantly yeah, yeah, right. I, I mean, I think to actually a million and it's a huge thing, right? Or 10 million, 100 million, you know, like how many parties does it take for a picture of a party to be just as important as The Hobbit? You know, like a, a million parties, 10 million parties, 100 million parties. You know what I mean? Um, in terms of being a cultural artifact, as sort of a, in the world space or whatever, whatever German word you'd want to use to describe that sort of common cultural experience. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> I, no, well, I, I'm, I'm stuck on this thing of like, it, it can feel like, it can feel very bad, like a, you know, a giant historical trauma. And on the one hand, you, you do want to kind of make fun of that. And, and I guess, it, it, no, and of course it's good. We, we must maintain that, that perspective, you know, never forget. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. But that, that like, you know, uh, all of these things, uh, you know, we're talking about personal experience and personal experience is, is always subject to interpretation. And it's always personal experience is always sort of happening now. Right. And like so for a moment, it can sort of feel that bad. Right. Like and that, and, and I think that's something, too, that we need to take seriously is that the the, the personal experience of these things can be. Uh, that can be like extremely traumatic or extremely upsetting, you know, uh, for a moment. Right or or for a longer time than than a mm. moment. I don't know. We're get we're I you, we're you getting, are, yeah we're getting off of our our brief right, which is to talk about uh, to talk about popular culture. But I, I mean, I think the popular aspect of this is is that these experiences. Uh, that is to say, the the experience is endemic to um, a high a high amount of sort of self documentation and a high amount of like uh, photographs. You know, especially kind of of you out there. Um, and what that does, these experiences are be- are becoming very common, and and are in fact sort of part of the popular culture in that they are part of how we, you know, first world sort of possessors of technology, etc., like re- relate to ourselves and relate to one another. Yeah, I mean, people use Instagram. Maybe they don't use Instagram, but they use it's people use like photo posting sites in Indonesia and Korea and stuff. It's not just a first world thing, um, but um, it's not. I mean, then again, like sure, that's right? A whole and actually, maybe actually maybe even more of a uh, of a sort of developing economies thing, given the the uh, preponderance of like mobile computing versus like. Uh, you know, desktop and laptop computing in those yeah, right yeah. in those places, like yeah. in the development, well, thing- yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But to step away from that, one thing that you did say is you talked about being in the now, right? And I think this is also what that article in the New Yorker, which I also read, was talking about. And um, and I think it's a really critical aspect of this whole conversation, and specifically how it gears to how it relates to Instagram is interesting because what does Instagram do but make your pictures look older than they are, right? By by applying effects to them that make them look like they were taken on a photographic medium that's gone through some sort of period of either it's either obsolete and thus is sort of signifying something older or has gone through some sort of decaying process or partial decaying process and thus like shows you something that has happened in the past so there's a signifier in that act of looking at the filtered photograph that's telling you this is not something that is happening now this is something that happened in the past right and so part of the emotional experience of it is sort of acknowledging that the thing that you're looking at isn't the thing of the now and it's a way of kind of relating to the now through negatively understanding what it isn't right um and and so in that sense uh when we talk about Okay, well, are you, if you're taking pictures all the time and you're not experiencing your life, yeah, looking at the picture later isn't going to conjure the immediacy of current experience that you might seek um, by looking at a thing while it's happening. Um, you know, it's not like you can put that in a bottle and look at it later. The experience of looking at it later is different, and not just because it has the filter. The filter is calling out a phenomenon that's already happening, right? It's not calling out something that pictures are already doing. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very mento-ish, right? Where it's like, you kind of have to recreate it. Um, actually, I'm not sure that comparison is entirely apt, but you see what you know what I'm saying? Like, like if you're pursuing the preservation of your present moment by sealing it up in pictures I, and looking at them later, uh, I don't think that that's what you're doing. Right, you're creating a document that will enrich your experience of future by considering it with relation to the pictures of the past that you have. Right, 
Um, but that's not necessarily the only thing that you're doing when you're taking these pictures, too. But there's a social, there's a huge social aspect to it, where you take these pictures and you show them to other people, right? And that's part of your relationships with these other people. It's sort of proving to them that they hung out with you. It's kind of demonstrating to them that the that the way that you see things. It's almost like a way of comparing qualia to a degree, rather com comparing your sort of subjective, the way that you subjectively experience sensory information to somebody else a little bit. I mean, not strictly, you can't, you know, we can't bridge that gap of, of solipsism entirely, but like, um, it's, it's, it is a way of connecting. I mean, there are people who like my Instagram photos who I almost, I, I don't, at least, you know, don't necessarily talk to a lot about other things. Right, and I get the sense that okay, this person connects to what I've taken a picture of more than they've connected to the things that I've talked about. Um, and in that sense, it's not about pre preserving the present moment for later, and it's not about re-identifying in the future who I am then by looking at who I was in the past. Um, it's it's a it's also a, a message that I'm sending to somebody else, saying like I saw this thing, like you see this thing, and tell me, and like, we'll mutually acknowledge that we both saw this thing, or that we're both looking at this thing now. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, does that? And I'm, I'm trying to sort of lay out a bit of a taxonomy of kind of the. Experience experience of online pictures sure. i mean you can also funny. i mean like there's there's an extreme which is that like it's a picture of you with a famous person right which is kind of akin right. it's distinct from but sort of akin to like a picture of you at a landmark you know what i mean it's right. it's it's a way of like demonstrating like i was there i saw this person i saw this thing i was actually standing uh i was actually standing on the lip of the mm -hmm. grand canyon right like but yeah. i i want to i want to like maybe zoom in a little bit or, or uh, pick apart this idea that like when, when you take a photograph, you're sort of uh, encasing, you're preserving the present moment because like your present moment, in fact, when you're taking a photograph has to do with, you know, thinking a lot about like composition and lighting and what, what mise-en-scene, right? Like what to yeah. include in this. So your, your present moment is, is a moment of a kind of like a, a, a I don't know, like a, a, an artist, a cinematographer, right? It's not. And, but when you, it's, it's never like, Oh, look at this picture. I remember the, you know, great care I took to compose this picture, you know, unless you are very self-conscious about being uh, a photographic artist, right? So that the, the, uh, there's a kind of false consciousness that's created about, uh, you know, about what you're actually doing, um, mm -hmm. with the, with these pictures. And so like this, this, um, this kind of compulsive documentation thing is, is sort of a, a, a bulwark against it, or it's a, there's something about it that's like trying to prove to yourself down the line, right. Uh, the good times that you were having, which makes it sound yeah. depressing. It's not always depressing, but like I, I take it to extreme. I think maybe it can be. Yeah, and I would say that that phenomenon counterintuitively is more is heightened more in the past because as you're talking about it, the thing that I'm really thinking about is say family reunions or wedding pictures or right. something like that. Like you talked, we talked before about um, how weird it is for actors who are rehearsing or stand-ups who are warming up new material to be photographed or recorded uh, because you, they want to be doing the big show. Like think about how many vacations and events are held where people go to great time and expense in their personal lives to do something that will have a picture taken of it, right? Everything from, you know, a mayor shoveling a bunch of dirt into a hole, right? To like, which took like, you know, two weeks to plan, right? And you had to call all the people to get the permit to close the street and all this other nonsense. So you could hold the groundbreaking ceremony to like, you know, the, 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 the most, one of the most vivid memories of picture taking that I have is standing in front of this fountain at Bush Gardens, Williamsburg, while my parents took pictures of us and just like how long I had to try to keep smiling, you know, and like the kind of the taxing, uh, the sort of painful taxing experience of like trying to be in that picture. And I, but I do remember the good things about it, like the, the light quality and the air and the people around me and the buildings. Um, 
but it's like, you know, the, we used to, I mean, not we used to, I'm sure people still do this, but um, the kind of, you know, non-candid posed picture taking is an even greater exercise in separating the emotional moment that you're trying to, you know, be able to claim later happened at the moment from what actually happened, right? It's like, oh, look at all these pictures of people being forced to stand still, right? Like, that's not the... Uh, yeah, I guess we get it a little bit more from really old photographs where they had to clamp your head in place and everybody looks super serious, right? right. Sure, sure, um, sure. Yeah, well, you couldn't smile because you can't hold a smile for 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that sort of maybe created a more authentic experience of what it's like to have your picture taken. Um, but yeah, but I mean, now it's interesting because we are sort of, we've sort of pared down that experience a bit. Um, there's a smaller barrier of behavior between the behavior of being photographed, the behavior of not being photographed, uh, but it happens a lot more often, <laughs> and it's a sort of a constant thing. So it's sort of a low-level din uh, that is maybe kind of infecting the way that we think about everything more than a sort of hugely punctuated fanfare or anthem that accompanies and ritualizes specific circumstances and situations. Right. Um, so, yeah. I mean, do people transfer all of their old photo albums into, like, these online hosts? Do people go through their old, uh, you know, Jimbo's First Communion and put it on Facebook? Does that happen? So, I mean, uh, let, me, let me tell you about, like, a, a, a sort of wish I've had or a sort of an idea for a project I've had, right? Like, um, my mother has all these photographs that are very cool and that go back to, like, Kaiser Wilhelm or something like that because she has, like, German uh, ancestors, right? And, and yeah. she seems to know about these... Uh, she seems to know like a lot about these these things and the people that never like try, uh, pass that on to me. It was never like you know uh, this this idea of like oh I'm going to tell you the stories of the family it was never really a part of of uh, my experience growing up. So like I've I've wanted to digitize them and then to like record her because making sound recordings is one of these things that we can do very easily now as well. Um, talking about them so that these things could be could be preserved. But then I would think like preserved for what. Right. And like, uh, uh, you know, who, who's gonna, who's gonna want to, who's gonna want to know, right? Like who's going to visit the, you know, what online archive, right. That I could set up with, uh, with things like this. And, and so like, it's really more, I was thinking like, it's really more about like having an activity, this idea of like documentation is like having an activity to do with a family member that I love, right. Like rather, Mm. rather than being, you know, I don't know, Hey, providing a useful service to, um, providing useful service to future generations, right? I I don't know. Yeah. But at the same time, I do think that I don't, I, I, I don't have a library sciences degree myself, but my intuition and judgment from my experience is that there need to be some pretty big leaps in the kind of field of librarianing to account for the way in which our culture and media have changed. Um, Because when you think about if you, when you were, you know, when both of us were in school and studying, you know, you would pour through people's letters, you would pour through any information available on a time period to try to determine, you know, how to make, you know, how to, you know, clarify and really crystallize your insights, you know, just, just, you know, microfilms of old newspapers, all of these things were valuable and they were all just painstakingly assembled and indexed and tracked by these professional librarians. And this was their job and this was their sort of trust that they did. And they did these things. And, um, the fact that everybody is taking all these pictures ourselves, um, I'm not necessarily saying there need to be gatekeepers, but I'd be curious to see what a what a librarian's duty would look like if you think of them less as the you know the people who work at a kind of obsolete business model kind of place that's trying to figure out how to be current by selling scones, right? Like to then uh, like think of it less like that and more like okay, you know what are the benefits you get from the systematic organization preservation and indexing of knowledge. 
right? Like, uh, and, and of, and of not just knowledge, but of literatures, you know, of representations, images, texts, right? Like putting, I mean, you can't necessarily know who would gain from being able to see the old pictures of your family, right? There might be somebody doing some sort of project, you know, 50 years from now and you'll never meet them. Uh, and then they might want, and that might be useful to them. And if we have the capacity to do this in an organized way that makes them more useful and powerful rather than a more haphazard way, it might be worth investigating how to do that. Right. I mean, the, the tools, the technological tools are going to have to be, are going to have to be invented to, to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff, right? Like, because we're in an opposite position now, or we're rapidly heading towards an opposite position of the, like, the Library of Alexandria problem. Like, like, what would you give, you know, to have gotten, like, two extra scrolls, right, that got, you know, copied down yeah. and transmitted by other means from the Library of Alexandria when it burned, right? But now, yeah. now we have everything, and there's, like, a real sort of separating the wheat, uh, separating the wheat from the chaff problem and that like a like a lot of problems that technology generates you know technology the genius of capitalism right is tu- is turning its own like waste products into you know fantastic new business opportunities like and- whey protein supplements <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah I, I was actually just looking at some whey protein supplements on, <laughs> online the other day um yeah. so can, let me take this i mean let me take this in another uh, in another direction, right? Like, because uh, we've been talking about kind of a moral and a sort of social dimension of memory, but I, I want to talk about like a useful dimension of memory uh, <laughs> as well. And like, talk about maybe creativity uh, a little bit. And I know that you, that you dabble in uh, maybe is not, not as much as I uh, do, but like you look at like on the online, you know, literature, the sort of blogature of, um, uh, like personal development, uh, productivity and creativity, right? Like productivity, yeah, yeah. like, uh, aimed at creativity. And there, there are a lot of sort of big, big uh, people in this, uh, you know, in this field and, and right. Like, but, uh, and I, I actually don't want to address any of the productivity aspects of it, but one, one aspect I, I think that's important that doesn't get uh, talked about a lot is, is memory, right? Like for being an artist, I think memory, uh, is extraordinarily important. And, and by artist, I mean, like, uh, you know, creating great new scholarship, you know, as well, like, crea- you know, synthesizing, synthesizing uh, information, right? Like sort of moving up and relating things on different levels of abstraction, like creativity, broadly speaking, is in like the, the, the production of new useful knowledge um, through uh, intuitive means, right? The, the, this seems to require this seems to require uh, memory and and you know the the great theories of history right like uh, can only happen when you've when you've internalized a lot of of names and dates and I don't mean like rote memorize them but when they're when they're like in your soul you know these things can these things can come out and and that like the idea that the idea that everything is just a Wikipedia search away seems to me to be sort of fundamentally uh, fundamentally anti creative right. Um, because uh, because it turns uh, it turns every creative act what, what it makes possible is a kind of bricolage uh, a kind of mashup culture on a scale that we haven't seen before and that's pretty awesome and we've seen a lot of that online but the idea. Um you know the idea of sort of producing a new literature, right? The idea of sort of uh, that kind of like bold, um, that sort of bold uh, leap forward uh, in in any of the useful arts, right? Like or or non useful art or you know decorative arts or fine arts, right? Like that bold leap forward, I think requires having a lot 
just committed uh, committed to memory. And I, I wonder if that, uh, again, not to get all moral panic about it, but I, I wonder if that isn't changing, right? If that sort of function isn't imperiled somewhat by the idea that uh, we are sort of outsourcing this um, to, to technological systems outside of our own minds. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Uh, I mean, for example, if oh, you want to talk I'm about... Thank you. I'm very relieved. Thank you. <laughs> I don't, yeah, don't worry, Matt. What are you talking about? Um, no, no, no. I mean, uh, I mean, just, what I was thinking about while you were talking about it was I was, when you talked about mashup culture. I was thinking about uh, contrasting the kind of mashup culture of the present day with kind of crate diving. Right, which is the sort of the earlier kind of hip hop, early you know sampling, and where you're looking, you're going through crates of records, and you're looking for tracks, often by forgotten artists or forgotten funk bands that you want to put as backing tracks for hip hop music. Um, one of the big differences is that uh, when you if you find a track, at least this is just me off the top of my head talking about it, when you find a track that you think has a really cool beat and you want to use it, uh, you don't necessarily have a pre-existing. Uh, relationship with the artist or with the context of the work. It's just something you found, right? Um, you know, James Brown is sampled so, so, so many times by so, so, so many people. Uh, and, and yet it's like, well, to what degree are, are those choices, um, you know, really represent a, a relationship that's been seriously considered with this artist? I mean, a lot of examples, yes, it has in a lot of ways. But when I think about mashup culture now, the thing that stands out to me is that people don't just mash up with cool beats, not to diminish that, but they mash up with songs that they care about, right? And they mash up with sort of different traditions that they care about. Um, I don't think that mashup culture has led to a sort of brute forcing of music where everybody is mashing up everything with everything else. At least, like, maybe, you know, that's happening. Sure, you can go find it. But the stuff that rises and, and sort of gains traction that people react to is stuff that hits kind of places in the cultural memory that are that are that we do care about that do mean something to us that are not just you know to to go back to that new yorker article not just taking the picture of your your daughter on the swing set but watching her watching the tide come in and having that vivid memory of it right like um you know, if you, you know, people doing all, like, for example, one of the big mashup subcultures that I've really enjoyed is the uh, Quad City DJ's Space Jam mashup culture, right, with such wonderful uh, hits as Bittersweet Slamphony, right, and whatnot, um, where, where there's people who just keep remixing the, the hip-hop track from Space Jam by the Quad City DJs uh, to various different songs. And it's meant, you know, as, as, as a joke. I don't want to say it's meant ironically, because that I don't want to get down that old chestnut again, but it's meant to be funny, right? Like, it's meant to be it's meant to be a joke it's not necessarily meant to be serious but sometimes really fun things come out of it um but i'm not convinced that this represents yes like you know we didn't care about the quad city DJs a while ago but but um necessarily unless you like to ride the train like i do all the time um toot toot. but i think that it does not represent a failure to remember this song Right, I think it, it, there's a reclamation of the memory that is happening because of this song, and the ones that are really successful are sort of acknowledging the difficulty presented us by the technology to differentiate these special songs from other songs and differentiate these special memories from other memories. But it sort of stands out there, kind of as a bulwark against the tide, being like, "No, this was something that was awesome and great, and this mashup for some reason is worth listening to," as opposed to all the other ones that you could just make with an algorithm. Right? Like, um, I, I do think that it's almost it's almost sublime. 
Right, in the sense of there's a negative aspect to it, and there's a, there's a sense of loss to it, but there's also a sense of something gained, and a sense of something that's beautiful coming out of it, too. Like, everything can be mixed up with everything else, and everything is always being jumbled with everything else, and maybe you're not necessarily forced to remember particularly things that matter to you as much as you used to, but you still can do that, and you do have access to these things, and you do have power associated with these things. So maybe what, maybe, and just sort of coming a long way on this journey, this rant talking about it, is that maybe part of the art of our age is finding ways to express these things that feel lost in a sort of self-conscious, ironic way in which they are found again, right? It's like we're, we're looking at a thing that we feel like we're losing and we're making it real in the moment through our art, right? And yes, it requires memory. It totally does, which is why some people are good mashup people and some people are bad mashup people because they're able to figure out and listen to and remember the cool, important things and aspects of these particular songs and remember their mistakes previously from doing this art before, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that might show. That's sort of like, is that the, is that the edge of the spear, right? And sort of, uh, you know, everything is a Wikipedia search away. Is, is the edge of the spear finding the best combinations that still mean something, even though they ought not to? I, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, no, I think that that's very... And, that, that's, and that's, you have to do a rant that's even longer than the rant that I just did, and then we're just going to keep pyramiding them out. <laughs> we're gonna, yeah, we're going to lapse into this kind of mutual... We're going to lapse into this sort of mutual monologue, which I, uh, actually is kind of... I mean, right, isn't that the... I, what is the new thing that's being that's being created there? I mean, I, I, I agree with what you say, but I want to play devil's advocate for the purpose of, sure. keeping, of keeping the scene going, I guess. Um, the, uh, right... Um, the uh, the idea is that this is this is I think continually I think like weak weak misreading um, because the the sure. the uh, the strong misreading would produce a new thing right would produce a new song that while it uh, kind of acknowledged the other songs sort of was something uh, kind of unrelated to them or something that sort of that sort of played played by its own something that played by its own rules. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, look, I mean, another like kind of mashup thing that I, that I enjoy is like the supercut, right? Like video supercuts. And, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've done pretty well on overthinking at publishing, uh, you know, some supercuts of, of, you know, of, uh, uh, what rallying the troop speeches and of saying, I love you and, and things like this. And the, the, the sort of pleasure you get in, in these is sort of, I don't know the the idea that like uh is it just sort of remembering the movies that that you've forgotten right like when you watch uh 40 inspirational speeches in 2 minutes or some of these is it is it mostly like oh goonies was awesome right that you uh, uh is that the you know is that the here's here's what I here's what I would posit um if you if, if you want to ask the question um I would posit that in each of these experiences of these art arts artworks that are culturally charged um, there is a creation of a world around the piece. Um, and, and that world has its own epistemology and its own social rules. And, and it becomes almost similar to like a social class or like an ethnicity, something that, that gets, gets placed and, and defined. Uh, and, and, it, and thus, the ways that it's used in the future are going to be affected by the way that you think about it in the past. You know, when you sing Everything I Do, I Do It For You, karaoke, you're thinking of Robin Hood, Prince of, uh, Prince of Thieves. Like, that's a whole world. Right, and then that world uh, ends up having some a lot of the same sort of calcifying barriers that a lot of our own experiences of our own lives have. And when you juxtapose it and mash it up in a way, then of course I think the issue of doing it strongly versus weakly is a lot of that is technique. 
and 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 art artistry, and, and there are ways of doing these things well versus poorly. And I think that there, it's possible potentially. I'm not willing to rule out that this could be an active genius. Uh, an active genius could happen in this sort of way. But when you mash that up with like. Um, Say like you know if you did a mashup of like everything I do I do it for you and like back that ass up let's just say hypothetically which would I think would be terrible uh, but it's possible um, you're taking these two worlds that have these sort of calcifying uh, definitions around them and that you sort of conceived of both in terms of how you experience them and in terms of how they kind of exist as bodies of literature within themselves and you're forcing them together in a way that they don't want to be forced together that shows both weaknesses and strengths and the ways that they're defined and kind of in turn challenges the ways that we define the sort of cordoned off areas in our own lives that are similar. Right. And it's like, um, I mean, like, you know, mashing up Gangnam style with anything is going to kind of like make you question, well, what part of that thing didn't have Gangnam style in it before? And why is that something that I have an emotional reaction to now? Right. And, and it might not just be, oh, it doesn't have a silly song with a backbeat and a horsey dance. You know, like um, maybe it does have a horsey dance, <laughs> like Robin Hood Men and uh, Prince of Thieves or Robin Hood Men in Tights, more likely. Or like, uh, uh, you know, what if you mashed up something from Indian from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail with Gangnam style? And they both have horsey dances. And you're looking and exploring the ways that the horsey dances like break each other down and, and kind of shatter each other's boundaries. Um, I mean, it's, it's not new to make artworks that have names or references that make them seem like they're not original when they are more original than they would seem. Right. And that's a terrible sentence, but, um, it's like, also, you know, I you mean, can... it's not like, uh, it's not unusual to include sort of quotations from other artworks inside, uh, artworks, even our uh, sort of artworks acknowledged to be great. Right, and I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of like, um, I'm thinking of uh, the wasteland. Uh, yeah, as I am most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, right, Definitely. like there's there are you know sort of all kinds of like transclusions, but the, they're sort of always with a difference, right? Like when when T. S. Eliot says like when lovely maiden stoops to folly and you know paces about her her, uh, her room again alone, right? Like there's a joke that's being made that's about the the like the stupid pop song. Um, uh, of his time, right? There's a joke that's being made that is uh, sort of about the uh, uh, that's about poetic meter, right? Uh, there's a joke that's being made uh, that has to do with like you know putting a conjunction right at the end of a line of verse uh, and mm-hmm. and making it stressed and and uh, and rhyming, um, you know. So this this isn't uh, I mean this isn't a, this isn't a new new phenomenon, right? This sort of inclusion of or or transclusion, depending on how exactly it's incorporated. The incorporation of of, of uh, other works in in works of art, right? Like uh, you know, yeah. quotation. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it goes again. It's something that's stronger the farther you go back, when everybody is quoting scripture and quoting each other, and you know, the doctor, the particular discipline, or something. Yeah. I think that, like, in when you want to talk about something like The Wasteland, yeah, if you want to talk about how do I do a good mashup, I think the things that you put into the mashup have to gain something from the new context, right? Or your work has to gain something that was not present in the work you're sampling by the context that you put it in. There has to be some sort of newness to it in the way that it's being positioned and articulated. Um, and I, I kind of want to hang this back to like, what makes a good Instagram picture, right? Is that like, well, the picture has to have something new about it that wasn't necessarily present of the exp- in the experience of it, right? There has to be some sort of reason that this picture is being looked at later other than just to recollect the thing that happened previously. Um, there, there has to be some sort of other thing that is happening in the now. 
um, that that is in both cases, I think, to make this a, a worthy endeavor. And not to say that if it's not worthy, you should do it. I mean, we all do all sorts of things that are not necessarily the optimal use of our time, and I don't want to judge that. Far be it for me. But, uh, you know, who's to say misreading isn't just what the doctor ordered before you on a Thursday night? A little bit of weak misreading never hurt nobody. Have have some nice, uh, you know, have some house some house liquor while you're doing that. Rather than, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, I think Skype uh, and Pete's going Skype. is telling us that it's time to wrap up this edition of the Overthinking It podcast uh, with with that advice for mashup creators. Go forth, go forth and mash up. Um, I mean, we've been mashed up, Pete, you and me. Yeah, that's true. We well, we were sampled for for a, a great uh, electronic song. Yep, I really enjoyed that song. Yep. Uh, so uh, people should do more of that. People should put our voices in more things that they work on themselves. So I, I approve. That is a, that would be the greatest. That would be the greatest Christmas gift you could give us, overthinkers. Yeah. You know, mash that's us. Actually, yeah. Mash us up with something, and if it's uh, everything I do, I do it for you. Uh, so much the better. <laughs> search your heart, search your soul, and when you find us there, you'll search no more. But where will you find us? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll you'll find us if you uh, email podcast at overthinkingit.com. You'll find us if you call or text two zero three two eight five six four zero one. You'll find us if you uh, if you go to the show notes for this episode and join the conversation that always happens uh, in the comment thread on those show notes. Uh, and uh, until next week, when we record the New Year's Eve edition of the Overthinking It podcast, you'll find us at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Hey, sexy horse dance. <laughs> oh, are we gonna do a mashup now? All right, let's say that's. Uh, I think we're alone now. Doesn't seem to be anyone around. Well, speaking, of, speaking of being Thanks, alone, I, I like. I'm thinking of you sitting in that hotel lobby, like, and I imagine. Please don't disabuse me of this if this is not in fact true. But I imagine that on whatever you know divan you know you're sitting on, um, that that a, a group of people, a group of spectators, has gathered around you, just <laughs> just watching you talk into your cell phone and. Do your half of the podcast, mouth agape, eyes wide at your ability to extemporize these things and uh, wondering what on earth the other half of this conversation could be. That's happening right now, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, you know what? If I don't post a picture of it not happening on Facebook, it's the same as if it happened, right? I love that. That's like Schrodinger's Instagram. Yeah, they're like the children from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. (laughs) They keep calling you Captain Rather, and they keep talking about how you were there in the long, long ago.